All right, let's get into the word. We are going to pick up Joseph's story in chapter 40 this morning. And we have two chapters. We're actually going to cover two chapters of Genesis. So we have a lot of territory to cover. It's all one context, lots of story, but very, very practical this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you tremendously. We really do, Lord. It is always a privilege to gather as brothers and sisters in the family of God and the body of Christ to worship you. Lord, to, to, to truly fellowship, participate in your life and the lives of one another, Lord. It's a beautiful thing to, as we step out of worship to watch everybody hug and shake hands and have conversations, catch up, introduce themselves. Thank you for the love that's here, Lord. And we know that that, that love that we have for one another, it's a response to your love for us. So thank you for the, for the opportunities that we have to reflect you in one another's life. Lord, I pray that we would be a faithful witness to who you are to us as we image you to others. As we watch Joseph image you this morning, Jesus. We're asking that you'd give us your spirit. Speak to our minds, speak to our hearts, speak to our lives and our context. Let us see you and know you and understand you. And walk out of here in your power for your glory. And all things. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So Joseph's life, he is, he's different as we've been traveling through Genesis. And he's different in this sense. I don't know where, if this is where the phrase comes from. But he's an average Joe. He's just a guy. So as, we, as you sit in the, the earlier narratives of Genesis, God is doing very radical things. When he first creates Adam and Eve, it's a unique experience that nobody else experienced, that they had in relationship with God. As we've been traveling through Genesis, looking at individuals' faith in God, every single one of them, it's, it's like they're living in this, this spiritual realm that we don't get to interact with and live in, in the sense of, like Noah, God has never showed up to you and told you to build an ark and it's going to take you 120 years and he's going to judge the whole world and you're going to watch this flood and you're going to repopulate the earth. There are nuances of Noah's life that we can glean and that we can apply to our own lives. But in many ways, to know and understand Noah, it's difficult. But even as we've watched Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, God showed up in those three men's lives in very unique ways. God manifested himself to them. God clothed himself in flesh and had conversations with them, committed to them these incredible promises that are covenants. This is what God committed himself to do in calling Abraham. And all of the picture of what's going on into their, in their lives ultimately pointing to Jesus Christ. As you sit in their narratives, it can feel very foreign and it can feel very distant. But the, now that we've stepped into Joseph's life, all of a sudden, he feels a lot more like us. He feels like just an average guy. 
he, God gives him a dream, but in that dream, it doesn't say that, you know, here's, here's this divine dream, that's, um, here's how God showed up. It's just somehow God spoke to Joseph in a dream, just like maybe you have woken up from a dream at one time or another in your life, and you feel like God just communicated something to me. He's given me an understanding. He's given me a direction. All of a sudden, it becomes much more practical and much more real. So in Joseph's life, he sits in this context of being an administrator. He's a business guy his entire life. We watch him from childhood being a favored son of his father growing up in the family business. And it's something that God uniquely wired him for, and it was something that he excelled at. Something that his dad recognized, not just because he's a favorite son, but he actually had skills and abilities in regards to doing the family business, being shepherds. And then as his brothers are jealous of him and sell him into slavery, and we watch him in Potiphar's house, again, he's involved in business. He has an employer, and this it's a master-slave relationship. But he's going about his life doing the business and how God has wired him for, uh, wired him to do, and just how he's functioning in life. And again, and as we watch Joseph, we only get to see him at major transitions of, in his life. We don't get to see him in the daily mundane of watching him for the last 13 years in this section that we've been in. He's been in Potiphar's house and in jail for 13 years. And in this, he's excelling in the area of business. By the time we see him today, as he gets lifted up into Potiphar's house, he's 30 years old. We could sit in there, okay, here's a guy that's grown up in the family business. He's been educated. We could say that he's got his bachelor's degree in business. He's probably gone on and he's got a master's level of education. But all of a sudden, Joseph becomes a very practical man that we can step in in our context. Because all of us know what it's like to be an employer. And even if you own your own business, ultimately you're still serving the interests of those who you're serving or you're producing products for. You're, you're still subject to government regulations and all those kinds of things. So even as we watch Joseph excel in Potiphar's house, excel in prison, and then today excelling in, in Pharaoh's household and in the nation, his life becomes very, very practical. So even in this morning, we're going to cover two chapters of information because it's all one context and one story. But we're going to sit in the very practical aspects of his life and how we can apply those principles into our lives. So Joseph, just an average Joe, somebody whose life that we can, um, that we can glean a lot from. As we go through the text this morning, one of, the, one of the, uh, the areas of his just being a guy, we're going to watch how he images, how he reflects Jesus into his context. Just like you and your personal relationship with God, how is it that you image, that you reflect, that you shine your Lord and your Savior in your face, in your mouth, in your actions, in your heart. This is what we watch Joseph do. And again, these are very, these are very practical things. Like we don't have to sit in like hyper-spiritual and try and uh, torture the text to say things that it doesn't say. But we see so many pictures of Jesus Christ in Joseph's life. I have a list that we're going to read through at the end. Um, but have that in mind as we go through the text. All right, let's read chapter 40. It says, it came to pass after these things that the butler and baker of the king of Egypt 
offended their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief butler and the chief baker. So he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison, the place where Joseph was confined. And the captain of the guard charged Joseph with them, and he served them. So they were in custody for a while. Then the butler and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, had a dream, both of them, each man's dream in one night, and each man's dream with its own interpretation. And Joseph came into them in the morning and looked at them and saw that they were sad. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in the custody of his Lord's house, saying, Why do you look so sad today? And they said to him, We have each had a dream, and there is no interpreter of it. So Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Tell them to me, please. Then the chief butler told his dream to Joseph and said to him, Behold, in my dream a vine was before me, and in the vine were three branches. It was as though it budded, uh, it, it, its blossoms shot forth, and its clusters brought forth ripe grapes. Then Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. And Joseph said to him, this is the interpretation of it. The three branches are three days. Now within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your place. And you will put Pharaoh's cup in his hands according to the former manner when you were his butler. But remember me when it is well with you. And please show kindness to me. And make mention of me to Pharaoh and get me out of this house. For indeed I was stolen away from the land of the Hebrews. And also I have done nothing here that they should put me into the dungeon. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was good, he said to Joseph, I also, I also was in my dream. And there were three white baskets on my head. And the uppermost basket were all kinds of baked goods for Pharaoh. And the birds ate them out of the basket on my head. So Joseph answered and said, this is the interpretation of it. The three baskets are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift off your head from you and hang you on a tree. And the birds will eat your flesh from you. Now it came to pass on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, that he made a feast for all his servants, and he lifted up the head of the chief butler and of the chief baker among his servants. Then he restored the chief butler to his butlership again, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker, as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief butler did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. So context is easy for most of us. This is, this is very familiar as we're watching big pictures. We're watching God performing his plans and his purposes for the children of Abraham. He told Abraham that his children were going to be servants and slaves in Egypt in the land that was foreign. And this is the, the way in which God is choosing to bring them down, sending Joseph before the family members in preparation to bring the children of Israel down into Egypt. And this is where we want to remember as we sit in Joseph's life. Joseph also was given two dreams. And in those dreams that he was given, 
God also gave him the interpretation. He knows that his family is going to bow down before him, but he doesn't know in what context. But we're told as he's sold into slavery, as he's in prison, the word of God is testing him. What God communicated to him doesn't look like what his life looks like. So therefore, he's abiding in this continual test. Did God really say this? Is God really going to perform this? And again, just as we will sit in the word of God and his promises, does God really love me? Has he really saved me from my sins? Has he really forgiven me from everything? Am I really gonna dwell in his presence for all eternity? The word, the promises that God has, has given to us, they test us continually in our daily lives. Are we gonna serve God and trust him or are we going to serve our own imaginations and our own desires with how we think we should process through the current situation? So Joseph, we're watching him being tested as he is gone, as the Lord has sent him before the household to save them. And in this context, the butler and the baker. The butler, this is the, this is the cup bearer. And these are, these are positions of great importance in the Egyptian culture. Just in, in, in any culture where you're dealing with a king and you're dealing with those who like the king or don't like the king or that they want power, when you deal with those who are in power, there's always those underneath them that are trying to seize power. So often people are being poisoned and they're going to be poisoned through food. So the person, if you are pharaoh, if you are king, the human being that hands you your cup and you need to drink, every single day. The person that hands you your cup, do you want to trust them? Do you want this person to be trustworthy? This person is going to be before you and serving you at meals and you're going to be having meals with your family. You're going to be having meals with other dignitaries. You're going to have be having meals with those whom you have delegated authority to. Do you want the person who's listening to those conversations to have a high level of integrity, to have a high level of trustworthiness? That this person that is handing me this cup is not handing me something that's going to kill me but they're handing me my life because I need to drink. Same thing with the baker. Food is going to get poisoned. We hear about it all the time about, you know, you tick off some employee. I mean, how many people have heard about getting, you know, spit in their food or dirt or whatever grossness before it gets served to you. The food prior to it being served to you is king. You want to make sure it's to your benefit and to your health. And this is where we want to sit in the huge imagery in this chapter. And this is Joseph's cry to be remembered. This is where we sit in communion. We watch through this baker and through this cupbearer, we're seeing the elements of communion. Now again, you don't want to squeeze the text and say, this is that. But we see the reflection of it. That what has Jesus told us to do? This institution of communion that as often as we gather together, we are to what? We're to remember him. What is his blood? The cup. What does it symbolize? He, our God, became just like you and me in this flesh. And he shed his blood. He died. And he tells us that his blood, it was for the remission of our sins. That's the removal of our sins. 
So as we look at this cup, as often as we come together to worship, we're to remember Jesus Christ. We're to remember his blood. We're to remember that cup. He instituted this again at a Passover meal the night before he is crucified. Same thing with the bread that he breaks. What is the symbology behind the bread? This is my body. It's broken for you. It's given to you. This isn't something that somebody is taking from me. It's something that I am offering to you. Do you need to drink? And do you need to eat? So what, what is your drink? What is your water? What is your wine? What is your bread? What is your food? It is the sustaining of your life. So as we hold these elements in our hand, we're being reminded about who Jesus Christ is, about what Jesus Christ has done, that he is the one who has freed me and liberated me from death and freed me and liberated me from my own sin, that I'm to remember him. But what was the consequence of the cupbearer in this situation? So things ended up being good for him and good in his life, and what did he do? He forgot. And this is why Jesus tells us as often as we come together, we're to remember him. If we're not talking about Jesus as often as we gather together, we're going to forget about Jesus. And then we're going to start talking about everything else other than Jesus. And then our lives are going to, we're going to find ourselves wayward and misdirected and focusing on things that we ought not to be focusing on. Maybe even participating in little sins and in great sins because our attention is not continually brought back to the one who we need to remember. And this, again, practical we just see the major seasons of Joseph's life, but we know in the mundane in his life that he's in constant remembrance of who his God is. And clearly, he is in constant trust of God where he's, where he's had his own dream circumstances, and he knows that God is the interpreter of those things. And we've had other, you've had your own dreams, you've had other people tell you about their dreams, and They've conveyed to you what they think it means, or you're trying to convey to them what you think it means. But here, Joseph declaring with confidence. The dreams in this culture, they're, they're, they are seen as divine communication. And if God, the divine one, is communicating to people through dreams, then whose responsibility is it to give an explanation and an answer for what that imagery represents? God is. So here Joseph declares, God is the one who will give you an answer. What's really, what's powerful to me in this section, like Joseph has no hesitation in the interpretation. God is the one who is the interpreter of dreams. Tell me your dream. I have a relationship with God. If he so chooses, he can give to me an explanation and an answer of what this means. And Joseph, in his confidence, there's, there's many times I'll interact with your lives in, in my wife or kids or, well, I think God is doing this. He might be doing that. We're, tr we're trying to weigh through wisdom and have discernment based on knowledge and life experience and circumstances. Eh, it could be this. It could be that. Joseph here, this is what it means. Very clearly in discernment, hearing from the Lord, in relationship with the Lord, seeking the Lord for the answer before he even knows what the riddle is and what the dream is. And very confidently saying, here's what it means. Now again, further imagery of Christ here. Throughout the Bible, three days, 
it is always pointing to that time period from Jesus' death to his resurrection. It's, it's, and again, it's not something that you want to sit there and milk out of every single one of the texts. But every time you see these three days, it shows up in all different circumstances throughout the Old Testament. It is there as this continual reminder to us that our Savior was dead and buried in this human flesh for three days. And after the third day, there was a resurrection. There was a lifting up. There was an exaltation. There was death had no victory over him. It had no authority over him because the sacrifice was perfect. He took his life back to himself. So again, the imagery that we see throughout Joseph's life, it's continually pointing us to the person of Christ. And he didn't even know it. But as we sit in these texts, again, I'm going to keep repeating myself. Because as we, as we leave here, I'm going to give you a list of all the different ways that Joseph's life images Jesus in the context. We don't want to milk it. There's a saying that if you... Uh, the longer you torture a text, you can make it say anything that you want it to say. So we don't want to torture the word of God in a way to make it say something that it's not saying. So in this, we have the context of Joseph's life. But in the context of Joseph's life, we're reading it in the word of God. Jesus himself being the very word of God. These are the things that he spoke this is the way that he interacted in the lives of these men and women. And this is what he has chosen to preserve for you and I today. So that as we read the text, what are we remembering? Are you just remembering Joseph, some guy that was alive 3,000 years ago, and here's the life circumstance, and great, he, was, he had issues and circumstances, and, but he, he, was always, he always came back on top. Is that the only thing that we want to remember about Joseph? Or do we want to be able to look at Joseph's life and say, well, what does this tell me about the God who has created me? It's funny, even as we interact with one another, we can come into all kinds of information with each other. But am I only doing that so that I can be in information and that I can be in the know and that I can feel like I'm your judge and better than you and uh, I can be your teacher and your counselor and your instructor and tell you what you need to do? No, we're interacting with one another in the body of Christ as we image Jesus to one another continually. Remember me. When it is well with you, often, often our remembrance of God, our remembrance of Christ is when it's not well, when there's major issues going on and we're crying out to God. Often when it's well, these are the periods in time of life where we find ourselves drifting away because we're telling God, I got it. Things are good. I don't need you. And it's not that we're saying that out loud, but we're saying it in our behaviors. Because things are good. And if things are good, the money's coming in, the job's good, the wife's good, the kids are good. Um, everything's good. So my mind will have the tendency to drift. And we're told that all of us drift. But remember, when it's good, when things are going well, showing loyalty to the Lord. All right. Let's look at chapter 41, because we still have a lot more to cover here. Chapter 41 says, Then it came to pass, at the end of two full years, 
So even after that circumstance, Joseph is waiting. He's in a dungeon. He's in a pit. Even though he's in a position where authority's been delegated to, the, to him, he still doesn't have freedom. And he's waiting on God to fulfill what he said. Here, this, uh, this man, again, Joseph as an interpreter, this is, this is an exalted position and activity in the culture of, of the time. Because again, everybody that's having dreams, they're looking to others to tell, tell me what it means, divination. Um, so the remembrance would be a payment that is owed uh, from the butler to Joseph. But in that, he has neglected the payment and forgotten for two full years. That Pharaoh had a dream, and behold, he stood by the river. Suddenly there came up out of the river seven cows, fine-looking and fat, and they fed in the meadow. Then behold, seven other cows came up after them out of the river, ugly and gaunt, and stood by the other cows on the bank of the river. And the ugly and gaunt cows ate up the seven fine-looking and fat cows. Ooh, Pharaoh awoke, no kidding. He slept and dreamed a second dream, and suddenly seven heads of grain came up on one stalk, plump and good. Then behold, seven thin heads, blighted by the east wind, sprang up after them. And the seven thin heads devoured the seven plump and full heads. So Pharaoh awoke. Again, this is, you have weird dreams, right? Things don't make sense. Plants don't eat other plants. Cows don't eat other cows. Something's going on here. And Pharaoh is awaking. So indeed, it was a dream. Okay, he's all hot and sweaty and he's woken up and he's anxious and he's thinking on these things. Verse 8 says, Now it came to pass in the morning that his spirit was troubled. There's, there's meaning to this. There's context to this. I don't, I don't understand. So it says that he sends and he calls for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dreams, and there was no one who could interpret them for Pharaoh. And it's not that nobody was giving him suggestions as he's looking to the magicians. And this is the same term that is used in Daniel's day as Nebuchadnezzar is having dreams and looking for an interpretation there. Same words being used for the, the pagan magic of both Egypt and Babylon and the word and all of its wise men. And they're giving to Pharaoh, here's, the, here's, here's, here's what it could mean. And nothing is settling with him. No, that's not it. That's not the meaning there. And then here in verse 9, you have the chief butler coming to himself. It says, the chief butler spoke to Pharaoh and said, I remember my faults this day when Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, both me and the chief baker. We each had a dream in one night, he and I. Each of us dreamed according to the interpretation of his own dream. Now there was a young Hebrew man with us there, a servant of the captain of the guard. And we told him, and he interpreted our dreams for us. To each man he interpreted according to his own dream. And it came to pass, just as he interpreted for us, so it happened. He restored me to my office, and he hanged him. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph. And they brought him quickly out of the dungeon, and he shaved, changed his clothing, and came to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, 
I have had a dream and there is no one who can interpret it, but I have heard it said of you that you can understand a dream to interpret it. So Joseph answered Pharaoh saying, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh an answer of peace. Now here, as we're watching this scene unfold, it is very, and we see this in other places, again, especially in Daniel, but we see it in multiple places in the word of God where the, the religion of man, the religion of maybe there's demonic influence, it's just man's commandments and man's ideas being contrasted with the true and living God in the will of the true and living God. And here's what Pharaoh is sitting in. Joseph had his own dreams, right? And what was the context of those dreams? The context is dealing with Joseph personally, but it's also dealing with the children of Israel as a whole. As we sat in the dream of the baker and the butler, their dreams, they have an individual context and they have an individual interpretation. And now here, God is speaking to the king of a pagan and Gentile nation. And and throughout the word of God consistently, Egypt is always a representation of the world, its systems, its ways, its religion, just like Babylon is. So here God, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, is communicating to a pagan king through a, a dream. But the interpretation, the focus, it doesn't have anything to do with Pharaoh personally. It has everything to do with the nation of Egypt. And ultimately, God is fulfilling his will for his called ones, the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the children of Israel. But at the same time, God is providing a means of salvation for the Gentile nation of Egypt that we're going to see here as we continue on in the chapter. But what's being contrasted is, again, the will and the glory of God and his truth and his power and his might and his control over all things versus the, the, the unknownness and the shiftiness and the un the lack of answers of pagan religion. And Joseph's comment here in verse 16, he's saying the interpretation, the understanding, the explanation, it is not in me. And the language in this sentence is, I will ask God to give Pharaoh an answer of peace. I'm going to ask God to respond according to the welfare of Pharaoh. So in verse 17, we have the Pharaoh telling his dream. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream I stood on the bank of the river. Suddenly seven cows came up out of the river, fine-looking and fat, and they fed in the meadow. Then behold, seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and gaunt, such ugliness as I have never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the gaunt and ugly cows ate up the first seven, the fat cows. When they had eaten them up, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were just as ugly as at the beginning. So I awoke. Also I saw in my dream, and suddenly seven heads came up on one stalk, full and good. Then, behold, seven heads withered, thin, and blighted by the east wind sprang up after them. And the thin heads devoured the seven good heads." So I told this to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. And this is, this is what I love. So often in life, 
there are circumstances that we all uh, interact with, regardless of what they may be, where we're looking to, for an answer. And when we go to seek counsel and understanding and explanation from worldly sources, they, they fall, they're short, it's, it's not complete. Like evolution to me, like where did I come from? Why are we here? Why do we exist? When you sit in its explanations, it's wanting to me. It just, it doesn't feel right. It doesn't seem right. It just, it seems off in its context and in its answer. And this is what Pharaoh is sitting in. But now Pharaoh is going to be presented with the truth and the true interpretation. Again, we're sitting in the contrast here because the moment, there's no hesitation in Joseph. It's this is what your dreams mean because God has revealed them to Joseph. So verse 25 says, Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one. And what has God done? God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do, the sovereignty of God here. Then, or sorry, the seven good cows are seven years and the seven good heads are seven years. The dreams, they're one. Verse 27, and the seven thin and ugly cows which came up after them are seven years and the seven empty heads blighted by the east wind are seven years of famine. This is the thing which I have spoken to Pharaoh. God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Indeed, seven years of great plenty will come throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them, seven years of famine will arise, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt, and the famine will deplete the land. So the plenty will not be known in the land because of the famine following, for it will be very severe, very heavy. And the dream was repeated to Pharaoh twice because the thing is established by God and God will shortly bring it to pass. So here we have God is the one who has given Pharaoh this dream. God is the one who has given Joseph the interpretation to the dream and put Joseph in this position in the first place. And Joseph, again, not, this isn't to be like the, all this hyper-spiritual circumstances, just very practically as Joseph is hearing the dream, he is hearing very clearly in his mind, in his, in his heart, this is what it means. And he's saying, this is what I am declaring to you. And what I am declaring to you is the very word of God. And it is true. This is what God has shown you. And he's shown it to you in two different dreams. Why? So in here, the word where, the first word where it says that God has shown to Pharaoh what he's about to do. It is verbal. God disclosed something. He declared something. The second time that sentence is in there, this is a matter of revelation. God revealed this to you. Why is one question. And then the second question, what are you going to do about it? Here, here you've been presented with information. Now, Joseph's going to continue talking because it's probably in line with his personality, which here's the information of truth. Now I'm going to tell you what you need to do in light of the truth. But how often do you sit in the word of God from Genesis to Revelation, and here's what God has told you about the future. This is what God has told you to do right now. 
This is what God has told you to do in regards to approaching him, worshiping him, following him. This is what God has told you to do in your relationships with other human beings. This is what God has told you is going to happen in the future. So even further imagery here, the the number seven, the seven years of trouble, the seven years of famine that are coming upon the nation of Egypt here. We have a future prediction. God has said There is coming a seven-year period of time in the future where there is going to be great tribulation, great trouble, great famine, great war, great earthquakes. He's told us these things. And now it gets back to the question of what do you do with what you're told? What do you do with divine revelation? God has given you information and me information that we are incapable of knowing about the future outside of his divine revelation. And he's communicated to us for a reason. So we go back up to the imagery of the the cupbearer and the baker. In that imagery, we have here is resurrection and here is resurrection unto life. On the third day, your head is going to be lifted up and you are going to be restored to your position before the king. And this is the imagery that we sit in the, uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that he has restored our life and our relationship to our king and to our God. Salvation is the imagery. But at the same time, the contrast is being provided The baker has sinned. The baker has offended. And his resurrection, his lifting up, is to be hung, is to damnation. Now we come back into Pharaoh's dream. The reason why God is giving the information about the future is for salvation. It's for deliverance. And it's not just for the deliverance of the Jews, it's for the deliverance of the Gentiles. Because look at the context. So here, after the interpretation is given, verse 33, out of Joseph's mouth, now therefore take action in light of the revelation that the Almighty God has given to you. Therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning, a man who can see, a man who has wisdom, a discerning and wise man, and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh do this. Take the steps. Just do it, right? Let Pharaoh do this. And let him appoint officers over the land and collect one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt in the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of, of those good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh. And let them keep food in the cities. Then... That food shall be as a reserve for the land for the seven years of famine, which shall be in the land of Egypt, that the land may not perish during the famine. Now, when he keeps referring to land here in this passage, he's talking about people. Pharaoh, God's given you information into the future so that you can prepare for what's coming. And here, like in the, in the New Testament, Jesus gives a parable where a guy's barns are full and he tears down barns and he builds up bigger barns and the guy is referred to as a fool because all he is doing is hoarding. The instruction that's here is preparation for the future that God has told you is coming. 
So we are in, in responsible, obedient action to his revelation. We are to be preparing for the future. Whatever that context may look like, ultimately preparing, placing our treasures in heaven, seeking his righteousness and his kingdom first, trusting that he'll take care of all the material needs that we have. But here, God's given the vision so that Pharaoh can make the proper preparations, not for the land so that the dirt can be okay, but so that human beings can live. Because God ultimately is the one who's bringing the famine. Now, if Pharaoh chooses not to act, what happens? People die. If Pharaoh chooses to act according to the revelation that's been given to him, what happens? People live. And this is the consistent testimony that we have in the word. If we respond to his will, to his plan, to his purposes, you live. If you reject, you die. So, verse 37, the advice was good in the eyes of Pharaoh and the eyes of all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find such a one as this, a man in whom is the spirit of God? And this is what I love too. So as we're talking about like Joseph, he's just an average Joe. He's just a guy. It's talking here that here's the recognition of wisdom and of relationship with the Lord. The Spirit of God is in this man. He's the first person in the Bible that's declared that has this description. We see another guy when the tabernacle's being built that God, the Spirit of God is in this man for the, the artistry and, and everything that was necessary. The same comment is made about Daniel. The same comment is made about Joshua and other men in the New Testament. This recognition of relationship with God. Same, again, the imagery that we have of, of Joseph here is he reflects Jesus Christ Spirit of God in Jesus without measure is the description that we have. Verse 39, then Pharaoh said to Joseph, inasmuch as God has shown you all this, there is no one as discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house and all my people shall be ruled according to your word. Only in regard to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring off his hand and put it on Joseph's hand. And he clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. And again, in all these, in every transition of Joseph, we see a change of garments. When his brothers are selling him off, they strip his garments off of him. Uh, the same thing with Potiphar's wife. His garments are stripped off of him. As he's coming out of prison, his garments are stripped off of him. Here, he's being clothed in the garments of fine linen, this imagery that we have of being clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Put a gold chain around his neck. And he said to him, ride the second chariot, which he had. And they cried out before him, bow the knee. We see this in, uh, in Philippians, that every tongue will confess. Every knee is going to bow in confession to Jesus Christ, to who he is as king, to the glory of God. 
this writing of the second chariot. This is, this is the, the, the news broadcast of the evening in regards to Joseph's new position so that all the culture knows this is who Joseph is. Here is his role. Here is his authority. Bow the knee to him. Set him over all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh also said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh. And without your consent, no man may lift his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphnath-Paneah. And he gave him as a wife, Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On. So Joseph went out over all the land of Egypt. And again, this imagery that we see in Joseph's life. We're promised in eternity when we stand before Jesus that he's going to give us a new name. It's a new identity. It's a fresh start. This name, um, if, it's, if it's being translated out of the Hebrew, which is, uh, it's thought to meant being a revealer of hidden things, that one's less likely because it's an Egyptian name. So it's thought to mean that God speaks he lives. The Septuagint translates this way, that uh, the name that's given to Joseph is that he is the sustainer of life in regards to the interpretation that he gave. It sustained the life of not only the nation of Israel, but the nation of Egypt. He's given a wife of a pagan priest. He's given a Gentile wife. Jesus takes on a Gentile bride. Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Jesus was 30 years old when he began his public ministry. Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went throughout all the land of Egypt. Now in the seven plentiful years, the ground brought forth abundantly. So he gathered up all the food of the seven years which were in the land of Egypt. And he laid up the food in the cities. He laid up in every city the food of the fields which surrounded them. Joseph gathered very much grain as the sand of the sea until, it's, until he stopped counting, for it was immeasurable. And, Joseph, and to Joseph were born two sons before the years of famine came, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, born to him. Joseph called the name of his firstborn Manasseh, for God has made me forget all my toil, all my suffering, and all my father's house. And the name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. We'll come back to that in a minute. Then the seven years of plenty, which were in the land of Egypt, ended. And the seven years of famine began to come. And Joseph said, as Joseph had said, the famine was in all the lands and in all the land of Egypt there was bread. So when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Then Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph, whatever he says to you, do. The famine was over all the face of the earth and Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians. 
And the famine became severe in all the land of Egypt. So all the countries came to Joseph in Egypt to buy grain because the famine was severe in all the lands. So here God is setting up his brothers coming down to him in the next chapter. Look at verse 55. Again, the imagery of Christ here where it says, Go to Joseph. Whatever he says to you, do. Does that sound familiar in the New Testament? The the first miracle that Jesus performs in his public ministry, the wedding at Cana, his mom tells the servants, go to Jesus. And whatever he tells you to do, do it. And this is where we back up in the context of God has given specific revelation And here's the advice, here's the recommendation. Whatever God has told you to do, do it. And then this backs up to where we began with this cry to be remembered. Jesus has cried out to us, cries out to us daily. He commanded his disciples on that night before he was crucified, remember me. Remember me in the good times when it's well with you. Remember me in the bad times when you're suffering and you're in pain. And what you hear from me, do it. Whatever you hear from me, be quick, be obedient, because God's commands to us are what? Are they for your death or are they for your life? His commands to us are for life. So why do we find it so hard to do what God has told us to do? For that, turn to Philippians chapter 3, and this is where we're going to end. We find it hard to do because we got this spirit of rebellion that dwells within each and every one of us. We rebel against his commands because often his commands are uncomfortable. They're outside of what we would agree with, how we would direct our own life. We rebel against his commands because we don't understand. We don't know the future. He's telling us to trust him. We don't obey because we're ending up abiding in a position of unbelief rather than belief. And here's the call. So chapter 3 of Philippians. This is Paul speaking to the Philippian church. Not that I have already attained. I haven't taken hold of. I haven't grasped the promises of God. It it, it hasn't been fulfilled in its fullness yet in my life today. I'm not already perfected. I haven't reached the goal. I haven't finished. I'm not standing in the presence of the Lord. But what do I do? Paul says... I press on. It's this language of I am pursuing. I am pursuing the commands of God. I am pursuing his revelation. I'm pursuing what he's revealed to me. That's what? That I may lay hold and attain that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. Joseph was laid hold of by God for a specific plan and purpose. 
And that's what we're watching being fulfilled in Joseph's life. God has laid hold of you for a specific plan and a specific purpose. And through his spirit and through his word and through circumstances, he faithfully leads you day in and day out. We're told to pursue it with all that we are. To lay hold of that which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me, ultimately, relationship. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended. But one thing I do, forgetting. And this isn't that I don't remember. But it's I'm choosing not to call up all the hardships of life. And all of the damage that I have done and all the damage that has been done to me. I remember those things. But I don't abide in it. Same thing as Joseph names his son Manasseh. God has caused me to forget my suffering, my toil, the pain that my brothers have caused me, the pain of being a slave, the pain of being a prisoner. God, what he's done into my life, he has caused me to forget those things because what he has done in me today, it so greatly outshines the pain that I've had in the past. So it's we neglect sitting in those things intentionally. And it's not that we don't, it's not that we forget. It's that we just, we neglect living in the past. We pursue living with him today, forgetting those things which are behind. And here's the thing, it's reaching forward. It's stretching out to those things which are ahead. I press towards the goal, the finish line for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Again, this is why Joseph preaches to me and teaches me so many things about the Lord personally, just because there's so many different things that I identify with Joseph in. But even just sitting in the, this morning and, and naming his son, talking about God has caused me to forget the suffering of the past and he has made me fruitful today, even in the land of my affliction. This is where we sit in the language for just the congregation here of what are we supposed to be about? It's, it's all about Jesus Christ all the time, but the phrase of just being upward and onward. It's the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We are pursuing him. We are, the, and the word pursued, it has the idea of persecuting, chasing down the animal that you're hunting, pursuing Jesus, abandoned fully to that pursuit, free from every shackle, from every chain, from every hurt, from every pain, from everything that you think has any kind of influence of your life and the freedom and liberty that we have in Christ, fully focused on that upward call in him, following him onward day in and day out in life. Here's all the different images that Joseph provides of Jesus. Worship team, you can come on up. And why I'm reading through these is I just want to help whet your appetite, whet your mind, whet your heart in regards to the power and the consistency of God's word. From cover to cover, it communicates Jesus to us. So here's all the images that Joseph, just an average guy, an average Joe, how he images Christ. 
He was a shepherd. He was loved by his father. He was sent to his brothers. He was hated by his brothers. He prophesied of his coming glory. He was rejected by his brothers. He endured unjust punishment from his brothers. He was sentenced to the pit. He was delivered to the pit, though a leader knew he should go free. He was sold for pieces of silver. He was handed over to the Gentiles. He was regarded as dead, but raised out of the pit. He went to Egypt. He was made a servant. He was tempted severely, but did not sin. He was falsely accused. He made no defense. He was cast into prison and numbered with the sinners and criminals. He endured unjust punishment from the Gentiles. He was associated with two other criminals. One was pardoned and the other was not. We talked about the wine and the bread, imaging communion. We talked about the resurrection, the three days, imaging the resurrection. He showed compassion. He brought a message of deliverance in prison. He wanted to be remembered. He was shown to have divine wisdom. He was recognized as having the spirit of God. He was betrayed by his friends. He was glorified after his humility. He was honored among Gentiles while still despised or forgotten by his brethren. He was given a Gentile bride, was 30 years old when he began his life's work. He blessed the world with bread. He became the only source of bread for the world. The world was instructed to go to him and do whatever he said to do. He was given the name, God speaks, and he lives. Amen.